0: I think there's more room to be less hawkish now with inflation closer to their target uh, uh, than where they were a year ago, so I do believe that uh, they're willing to have a little more inflation in the system to uh, help, help uh, uh, the labor market from cratering, uh, uh, but that's a real test. Uh, the question that we often get is, you know, will central banks explicitly change their target? And we don't think so. We think that would be a really bad idea. Uh, You know, you can't like change the rules of the game uh, midway through, right? It doesn't invoke confidence into the institution. But I think it's one of those things where they'll allow uh, a little more tolerance than they have historically uh, for uh, protection of the labor market.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Welcome or welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues, and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful
2: conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Greg Peters. Greg is Co-Chief Investment Officer of PGM Fixed Income, and is one of the co-heads of the multi-sector team. Greg has been in the markets for a long time. Prior to joining uh, PJM, he was Morgan Stanley, Global Director of Fixed Income and Economic Research and Chief uh, Global Cross Asset Strategist. And earlier in his career, he worked for Salomon Brothers and at the Department of the U.S. Treasury. Greg, great to have you with us today. How are you? I'm great. It's a pleasure to be here, Alan. Well, thanks for joining us. Uh, we always get our guests just to kick off by giving a brief intro to their careers, how they ended up in markets and economics. So if you wouldn't mind, can you give us a a quick overview of your route to becoming a PGM's um, co-head of fixed income?
0: Yeah, it's a circuitous path, which I think oftentimes is the most interesting one. Um, So um, I started out uh, with the federal government here in the U.S., uh, the Treasury Department, uh, on the tail end of the savings and loan crisis. So uh, it was a fantastic experience as a bank regulator going through that time. Uh, and what was great about that is that uh, I had a tremendous amount of responsibility, probably too much responsibility for a 22-year-old, uh, uh, but uh, uh, but I really learned a tremendous amount and uh, really used that as uh, fuel to kind of broaden my understanding of uh, different parts of lending and markets and structuring. And so it was really fantastic. And then I moved uh, there to basically Solomon Smith Barney, uh, and, uh, which was acquired by Citi. And I was on the mortgage side, mortgage derivative side, then moved into research. Um, and uh, what's funny about that is that I moved out of trading into research, and it was something that I was really quite, um, quite upset about but the reality is it was the best thing to happen to me. It it fit my personality. I I learned so much. It it allowed me to delve deeply into issues and to use my broad-based knowledge. And so it was fantastic. And so I grew up on the research side. Uh, And then about 10 years ago, I moved to PGM to manage uh, portfolios. And uh, it's been... uh, 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 it's been a great uh, harmonious uh, uh, type of career in that
2: respect. Good stuff. And obviously, um, you're heading up the team at PGM Fixed Income. Uh, I'm one of the co-heads on the multi-sector team. So in terms of the types of portfolios you're you're running, uh, can you give us a sense on those? Yeah, so they're broad global fixed income. Uh, uh, there is uh, a whiff of equities here and there,
0: but you know, mostly fixed income for sure. Uh, but we're in uh, we're in every single market globally. Uh, you know, credit uh, we're quite known for credit. You know, from high yield levered loans, uh, investment grade corporates, uh, structured products is a, a big part of what we do. Um, and so, from CLOs to CMBS to uh, esoteric ABS um, and the core sovereign. So. On the multi-sector side, and as a CIO, it's about putting together these component pieces, um, creating an asset allocation scheme that um, you know pushes you uh, up and out the efficient frontier, and so utilizing all those uh, different tools and instruments. Um, you know that's what we do on the multi-sector side.
2: Okay, great. Well, we've obviously had a lot going on in fixed income this year. It's been a very interesting uh, few months, so it's, it's very timely to have you on to get your perspective. Um, maybe firstly, from an economic perspective to set the stage, obviously coming into the year, a lot of expectation around recession and, and the economy has been very resilient. So good to get your perspective on why that has been the case. And then obviously looking ahead, I guess a, a general expectation of, of, a, of a soft landing now, um, and, and, and 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 I suppose a, a virtuous scenario of, of uh, declining inflation and, and rate cuts uh, uh, being priced into markets. How do you see things, well, personally, were you surprised about the resilience of the economy and how do you see things playing out looking ahead? Yeah, so just um, kind of zooming out for
0: a moment and then I'll delve into it. Uh, I think importantly and critically, Uh, We are in the midst of uh, a series of secular shifts. Um, I think uh, growth uh, is on a different plane globally. I think we broke out of this secular stagnation story. Uh, Part and parcel to that is the influence of China into the global um, uh, economy uh, uh, is very different and will continue to be very different uh, uh, across multiple dimensions. Inflation. Also, uh, I think um, in a different realm than what we've seen before, geopolitics as well, the importance of geopolitics. Um, uh, I also think there's this um, you know, trend in place where there is a return to labor, uh, uh, focus on labor, labor gains uh, away from a return to shareholders, uh, and then uh, enrapped by central banks as uh, the response function, reaction function of central banks, given those uh, secular shifts, uh, is very different. So um, I think we're in a, you know, a different world, a different regime, um, and candidly, I'm not sure uh, investors have completely accepted or, or let's say agree with uh, uh, my assessment here, but, uh, but I think it's really quite important. Uh, so that, you know, I don't want to sound melodramatic about the whole thing, Alan, but, but at the same time, uh, I do think it's important. Uh, and that gets me to the resiliency. Um, you know, you go back 18 months ago, two years ago, and the prevailing wisdom is that uh, uh, the economies would not be able to withstand uh, higher interest rates, right? And I mean higher interest rates off of zero. So, we've clearly moved well above that, Um, and uh, um, I think that has been a surprise to everyone, myself included. So, uh, um, that's uh, for sure. Uh, You know, going forward, you know, we're pretty positive on the global economy. We think about the world in a scenario-based way, probabilistic way. Uh, I don't believe in kind of a single-point forecast um, type of measure. So- if you just uh, allow me to kind of walk through how I see the U.S. economy as an example, we have a uh, you know we'll start with a recession force uh, first. Uh, we have a 25 percent uh, probability of uh, uh, of a recession in the U.S., um, which is clearly lower than what was talked about last year, but still high, right? It's still three x what the normal probability is, so. We still have to be vigilant around that uh, downside tail, which makes it tricky from an investment standpoint, right? When the downside tail is 3x the normal tail, uh, uh, that is something that uh, uh, clearly influences uh, asset allocation and uh, markets. Uh, we have a soft landing probability of a 15%. And then we have what we call this weak flation, which is our modal scenario of 35%. And weak flation is essentially. An environment where GDP is slightly below trend, uh, one one and a half percent, with inflation remaining above a uh, target, um, and so that's our moral scenario. And then the other scenarios we have are more bullish. Actually, we have a nominal GDP boom, we call it, and a roaring 2020s, uh, uh, and the, and really the scenarios there is you know stronger growth. Uh, you know, a much more favorable backdrop economically. Uh, but if you put it all together, the mass of the probabilities are quite favorable, and then we have this tail. So, so we're pretty constructive actually on the global economy, as we think there's there's elements in the economy that has shifted, as I mentioned before. Uh, productivity
2: is one aspect, and we're on a different growth plane. Okay, interesting, and. I mean, obviously it's been, as I say, been an interesting uh, year in fixed income. Um, you know, I suppose if you were to trace the uh, trajectory of bond yields, maybe over the last 18 months or so, obviously for a period we had Fed tightening, but bond yields been slow to fully respond to that and and, and the curve steepening, or sorry, the curve inverting. And then as we went into the summer of this year, there was that sharp catch up in, in long-term bond yields. And, uh, a move up in 10-year up to 5%. And then since then, we've had a had a, had a, a rally um, on, on, on rate hope expectations. I mean, in the, taking those bits in turn, were you surprised at, at that kind of initial period when um, you, you had such an inversion in the curve and, and the long end didn't respond as much? And then secondly, how did you see what, what were the key drivers of that catch-up phase uh, as we entered the summer?
0: Yeah, so I think in short, it's the market's been pushing against central banks. There's there's not been an acceptance of what central banks have been telling the markets, right? Um, and so the curve has been inverted essentially because the belief was rate cuts are on the come and this can't, this can't stand, right? I'm oversimplifying, but I do think that's the core of it all. And there's you know, technical influence that uh, you know maybe uh, help the back end of the curve and those types of things. But the bottom line is, markets have been pushing back on central banks and not listening to central banks, uh, and you still have it today. and uh, And I also think uh, the markets have not fully appreciated the new regime that we're in. So here, let's go back to March of uh, 2022. So March of this year, um, we had a regional. Uh, banking wobble here in the U.S. The concerns clearly was a, a systemic shock to the system, um, but what was notable about that event was how quickly and severely the markets repriced the front end. So, literally in you know a half a day, uh, the front end uh, in the U.S. priced in you know two hundred basis points of cuts instantaneously. What's notable about that is inflation at that time was above 6%, growth was strong. Um, and I know banking crises are scary, of course, but the snap reaction in the markets is that uh, cuts, cuts, cuts. And that really emboldened us uh, around uh, a Kind of our positioning as we feel the markets are utilizing this outdated playbook, uh, as it's really difficult for central banks to cut rates when they're above target on their inflation uh, uh, and growth is, you know, still re- reasonably strong. So, you know, I think that was a very uh, important event for us in our thinking. So the way I kind of been looking at it all along is that the markets have been volatile. Uh, around uh, the rhetoric of central banks uh, and the acceptance of that rhetoric. And um, it's still that way today, honestly. There's been a big rally in the bond market here as uh, the belief is central banks are done, which is likely true, but really pushed the envelope, continues to push the envelope around uh, forward rate cuts. Um, And to me, that seems uh,
2: heroic. Okay, and I mean, obviously, the the other big theme in terms of fixed income and bonds at that time during the summer was around debt sustainability, which you know uh, had, I guess, had been in the background for a long time, but but didn't seem to be a market concern, and then suddenly appeared as a as a market concern. But equally, has has kind of gone away just as quickly. I mean, how is that something that you're concerned about? And and when you look at the both the issuance uh, uh, outlooks going ahead and the likely composition of the um, demand side. Uh, how, how uh, I suppose, relaxed are you on, on the outlook from that perspective?
0: Yeah, so I, I never accepted debt sustainability as a reason for the sell-off earlier this year. I, I, would, I, I think that was a uh, um, kind of a politically driven red herring in many respects. Um, you know, I think it was really just boiling down to uh, the pushing back on central banks more than debt debt sustainability. I will say though, uh, uh, you know, you look at fiscal deficits and they are quite eye popping. Uh, you know, in the U.S., it's uh, you know the worst fiscal deficit that we've had. Uh, you know, without uh, a recession or war, um, so uh, you know these are uh, very eye popping type of numbers and it does matter. And so, uh, you know, this is something that we know doesn't matter till it matters. Um, uh, you know, so, but, but, uh, but, but I do think it's been important, uh, from a pricing and, and market structure standpoint. So that fiscal deficit obviously has to be funded. You have, uh, Uh, a a lot of treasuries uh, coming to the marketplace, that treasury supply has to be absorbed at a time when uh, the compositional shift of buyers have changed, right? Um, And so, right, if you look at who's buying this new supply, it's really quite interesting. So we know that Uh, Foreign um, investors have stepped away from uh, the U.S. uh, Treasury market. Um, I don't think there's a nefarious backstory there. I just think there's a home bias (laughs) type of element um, as yields have uh, increased um, across the globe. Um, And so there's just less demand for that. Um, So as a consequence, what we've seen is a, a real shift in what we call the household share. Uh, so if you look at the shift in uh, who's who's absorbing this record supply 73 uh, percent is coming from uh, the household now the household is interesting because 90 percent of that household is hedge funds so hedge funds are in that household category and so what's notable about that is uh, you know a hedge fund type of investing and this is done on this basis uh, trade you know element is they're more sensitive to price, right? So the marginal price setter is much more sensitive to the pricing. Um, and so that creates a lot more volatility in the marketplace um, and uh, makes uh, the markets much more fraught as a result as you know global investors coming in are not not as sensitive, right? Um, uh, and so I think this is the big story in the market uh, and driving the volatility and the moves in the marketplace uh, more than anything else. So while I'm not worried about debt sustainability per se, the supply that's coming out uh, uh, and the market absorption and the the composition of the buyer base has shifted so dramatically that that's the knock-on effect.
2: Okay, interesting. And obviously, you mentioned the kind of reduced demand from foreign buyers. And obviously, what we're seeing outside the U.S. is is a shift in the yield landscape as well. And, and obviously, I mean, is, I guess, is that something to be concerned about from a U.S. perspective in terms of, say, Japan, for example, and with the ultra low yields there we've had for the last period? You know, the, anecdotally, I'm, I'm, I haven't looked at the data, but I, it, the theme has seemed to be of Japanese institutions investing overseas to pick up yield and now concerns that that may be unwound. It, uh, with the, obviously, if that was the case, it would have multiple implications across the number of asset classes. How, wh- Where do you see things in Japan?
0: Yeah, so I think that is uh, really important as we think about 2024. I think the consensus is that the uh, BOJ is uh, finally going to tweak their policy. Uh, that I do think is important. Uh, I do think uh, that will have uh, a marginal impact on uh, those global flows, but at the end of the day, this the interest rate differential is just so large still, right? So uh, uh, you know, you look at it, and it's really quite quite dramatic. Uh, uh, as the gap has just really grown uh, um, quite dramatically uh, uh, over the past few years, as global central banks have moved up rates and BOJ hasn't, right? But it's about hedge costs in the FX, right? And so uh, uh, clearly the FX, uh, uh, the uh, yen is under pressure here. Uh, uh, it stabilized somewhat, but it's still you know, under pressure. And it's just basically the interest rate differential, right? Uh, that's driving it. Uh, and so uh, that coupled with the hedge cost uh, just really puts Japanese investors in a really tough spot uh, as um, uh, it's really quite costly for uh, Japanese investors to go outside of Japan just given uh, uh, the interest rate differential um, um, and the hedge cost. So uh, I do expect that to um, be less hateful, I guess, in 2024, uh, uh, and will have uh, impact uh, on the margin. But I don't think it's a wholesale change, but it's definitely a marginal change that bears watching, no pun intended.
2: Okay. And, I mean, obviously, as you say, there's a growing expectation of a Bank of Japan move. And obviously, we've already had incremental changes in their, Yield curve control. So now the next step uh, is obviously a move in, in, in official rates. I mean, from a, a bond market perspective, how much, how high do you think yields in Japan could go? And secondly, you know, I mean, there's some suggestion that you might start to see financial repression in Japan in the sense of private sector institutions being encouraged or, or a bit of moral suasion being enforced to, for them to to, to buy JGBs. If 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 the Bank of Japan is going to be less active in 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 buying their government debt, is that a scenario you you think is plausible? Yeah, I think it's
0: plausible. I would say financial repression has been going on for quite some time, so that's not a new phenomenon. Uh, perhaps maybe the buyer base changes on the margin, but I do think there's this just natural home bias, this domestic uh, bias, uh, um, and I think that is something that will help. So. I don't know if it has to be uh a formal financial repression type of program. i think it happens more naturally than you think i guess
2: okay so uh, and and i mean in terms of you don't see you're not concerned about a kind of a a big spike in j g b yields and then having an kind of a a tail impact on on global global markets well, it's a concern uh, uh, uh,
0: but i think it's a remote one um i think it's a real Remote when I don't see that as, as um, you know, a moral scenario by um, any stretch. But it could happen. But I, I also think the uh, BOJ is quite vigilant around that. Um, and it's another form of yield curve control. And so um, um, I worry about it, but it's not, uh, not a predominant worry.
2: So I know you've written a, a, a little bit recently around the theme of yield is destiny in terms of the kind of the... Uh, investment outlook and asset allocation outlook. So maybe if you could just, what does that mean, and uh, what, what are your, the implications for for investors?
0: Yeah. So I think if you uh, go back, and I think history will go back and shine a very unfavorable light on this uh, zero and negative interest rate policy. It uh, crushed savers. Uh, it had a lot of unintended unintended effects, and uh, and you know what you know zerp and. QE and all these programs were about, it's uh, about affecting the portfolio channel to use uh, central bank clients. And, you know, in short, what that means is they forced investors out the risk curve and uncomfortably so, um, uh, as they made uh, owning cash and fixed income instruments just so unattractive. Uh, so I think that was unnatural, right? So the sell-off has been quite acute You know, I'm I'm fond of using this uh, path destination uh, example where it's like going on a family trip where, uh, uh, you know, oftentimes in the car, uh, you know, with the kids and the dogs, it's not quite a pleasant experience. Uh, But once you get there, it's good, right? Once you get to the resort, it's all fine. Uh, uh, And I kind of think about the journey of fixed income as a family vacation over the past uh, 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 two years. So yield is destiny is just the higher income that one receives from fixed income is back to what fixed income was intended to do, right? So uh, income's in the name uh, and it's about yield and carry. Um, And we're in a much better yield and carry environment and that starting point matters a lot. So if your starting yield is at 1% as an example, your prospects for return is is really quite muted, but when it's five percent, it's much better. And uh, if you look at it over history, um, when yields are higher, returns are higher, right? It's not rocket science, you know. You just get more income, more more into the door, uh, and so yield is destiny is just a reflection of higher yields and the bull market. Is actually the yield itself, right? So, and I'm one of the few folks I think who don't want a fixed income rally. Um, you know, I want yields to remain higher, as I think that is that you know that is uh, really what investors and savers need. Uh, so, I think the worst possible outcome would be, you know, going back to where we were in 2020 or, 2000, you know, that period, I, I think the prospects for kind of return in a balanced asset allocation scheme is,
2: um, is much worse in that environment. Okay. And I mean, a couple of follow-up questions to that one is obviously, you know, yields touched 5% uh, or so now we're back to, you know, 424 and a quarter. I mean, where do you see that in the the medium term range? Are we in the middle, or towards the bottom, or how would you, you know, in terms of what you see as the kind of the normal range uh, in this in this kind of new environment that you painted? Yeah, so I think the range is
0: wider than what we've been accustomed to. So, uh, uh, you know, we have like a hundred basis point range, which is quite wide, right? So, uh, but. That's the volatility that we see in the marketplace. So it's not uh, completely out of bounds, uh, but you know we see a range of between five and four percent. That's the range that we see. Uh, um, um, and I know that's not a sharpened pencil answer, but uh, but we do see uh, yields higher. We're in this higher for longer uh, type of camp, and so uh, you know we're we're uh, we're seeing. Curves uh, starting to normalize and yields higher, and that's
2: that's that's our forecast. And obviously, higher for longer was was a maybe an accepted view going back two three months. But the market has shifted a little bit, obviously, in terms of pricing and rate cuts now. And I guess the case on, on that front is we've had a fall in inflation, so real yields have gone up, and uh, you know, obviously, inflation is heading back towards target. So even even in the absence of a, of a, a slowdown. There could be a case for, for for cutting rates. So, do you think that inflation will be stickier than, than 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 people expect, or do you think that that, that narrative is is incorrect uh, in terms of your your belief in kind of higher for longer?
0: Yeah. So the fall inflation has been uh, miraculous, right? In many respects, it's uh, the uh, the dis- disinflation that has come through the system this year has been really notable. And I think you have to give central banks uh, a lot of credit for that. Um, and so I think that's a, a great story for sure. Uh, at the same time, there's this debate in the market and even within our within our own shop, the last mile, right? Uh, is that the easy part or the hard part? Um, I'm in the hard part. So a lot of measures that we look at, uh, it seems to me that Even in the good sector, which has really seen inflation come down meaningfully, right? That was the sector that had the supply and demand shock hit at the same time during COVID. Obviously, prices skyrocketed as a result of that. That has really uh, normalized um, as supply chains opened up at all. But there's still more inflation there than our models are predicting. And so to me, I'm reading that as... There's something in the system that is not being captured. Um, uh, And I think it's important to remember that inflation modeling, inflation forecasting is quite fraught to be kind, right? So uh, it's really difficult. Economic forecasting is really difficult. Inflation forecasting is difficult squared, right? So we have to be humble around that. So I'm in the camp that uh, inflation is more sticky uh, uh, than uh, what we've been accustomed to, uh, the uh, the important part of inflation, particularly in the U.S., uh, is the service sector, right? So it's a big part of GDP, of course, uh, but it's you know 56 percent of the uh, core PCE basket, uh, and that gets me to labor, right? It's really difficult to see the service sector inflation come down meaningfully when you know we're at closer record unemployment rates, wages are still rising, albeit at lower levels. And so I think that's a really difficult inflation piece of the puzzle uh, to shake out. So in sh- short, I think inflation will remain above that 2%. And that gets me to uh, a Fed policy and central bank policy. And so, yes, we do see some scope for modulating, being less restrictive. Still restrictive, but less restrictive. And so we're penciling 50 to 75 basis points of cuts. So you're still in restrictive territory. And we think there's cover for the Fed to do that. But the markets continue to push more and more and more. And that's that's where I disagree. Um, And it goes back to this persistence above or below the 2% target. So we're coming out of this long era of central banks not having to contend with inflation because it's been persistently below that 2% target. Now, I believe uh, uh, it'll be persistently above. And that changes the degrees of freedom that central bankers have to cut rates. And so that's the disconnect between kind of my way of thinking and what the markets are
2: pricing it. Okay. And I mean, that stickiness, um, you took, I guess that's related to some of those structural themes you mentioned at the outset and, and possibly maybe that return to labor being a driver and I guess, uh, the labor market being a bit tighter and labor supply and then not as, uh, as ample. Is that the case? And, and also, uh, you know, the the kind of other factors that people talk about in terms of this kind of longer term inflation outlook are around deglobalization and decarbonization. So, I mean, how, uh, how important would you weight those factors in terms of that view? Is it more the labor market view or is it as much those other structural themes as being potential drivers of, of a slightly higher inflation rate over time? No, no, I agree with that. I think uh,
0: this change in globalization, you know, matters a lot. We see, uh, and more importantly here, uh, uh, less so than see, uh, talk about uh, onshoring and uh, uh, friend shoring. I think that's been more rhetoric than reality at this point. But the clear desire is to bring uh, supply chains uh, closer to home or uh, uh, at home. So for the U.S., that's usually beneficial for not only the U.S., but Canada and Mexico, as an example. Uh, this green initiative is costly, right? Um, and so, you know, you're spending on both, right? You're spending on near-term uh, energy security, as an example, and long-term s- solutions that are different, uh, that are decarbonized. So that that um, is uh, definitely uh, inflationary. You know, I think those are uh, you know definitely big drivers, and the labor side is key, of course. Um, and I view the labor uh, story as critical to a more balanced economy as well. Uh, so I think a lot of the issues, uh, both politically and economically, have been driven by inequality. As if you look at the gap, has just really grown quite substantially over the past couple decades. Um, and, uh, seeing, uh, seeing, uh, a return to labor, uh, wages moving higher is, is a clear benefit for a more balanced economy that's more sustainable. Um, and so, uh, I think all else equal, that puts, uh, more pressure on inflation as well on the margin. So, yeah, so I agree with you, Al.
2: And I guess the flip side, I mean, I mean, the thing that people might point to as being the wild cards that might counter all of that is on the productivity side and and obviously this year we've had a lot of talk about AI and generative AI and chat GPT and all of this stuff and uh, but we have seen it you know after a, a, a long period of very poor productivity numbers the most recent one was was a, a a movement in the right direction where do you sit on that side and is that something that could propel the economy into a a higher growth path and with you know, and contribute to maybe offsetting some of the concerns, uh, those kind of supply shock concern concerns.
0: Yeah, so productivity uh, is um, also quite tricky to, uh, to model. Oftentimes, you don't realize there's a productivity boom until it's uh, past or uh, you're deep into it. Uh, you think about the Greenspan era as an example. Uh, but that is a key driver of our... Um, are uh, potential bullishness going forward? So uh, it's tenuous, uh, but uh, but we do see productivity gains uh, that will allow uh, the uh, global economy, the U.S. Uh, economy in particular, to uh, to grow more and 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 get out of this secular stagnation story. And just thinking about the U.S. for a moment. Um, we are actually really quite constructive, quite bullish on the U.S. on a medium to long-term basis. Um, we think there's real potential for uh, the U.S. to be a clear winner here. Uh, as China, you know, we see in secular decline, uh, you know, we can talk uh, hours about that, I'm sure, in different components. Uh, uh, but, uh, uh, but we see the U.S. as a, uh, a clear, undeniable winner here. Um, and uh, a lot of it has to do with technology. Uh, a lot of it has to do with labor. And um, a lot of it has to do with rule of law and uh, FDI and you know, capital uh, attraction and those types of things. And uh, yeah, so we're quite constructive on the U.S. Uh, here over the medium and long
2: term. Okay, so that's probably a good segue into talking about China, and it sounds like you're much more upbeat on the U.S. Uh, vis-a-vis China uh, on a multi-year basis. Um, yeah, good. Good to get a sense on uh, how you see the the longer-term outlook playing out in China and and its implications for 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 global asset markets.
0: Yeah, so I think uh, that is a big secular shift. Uh, the influence of China on global growth growth, so the second derivative growth um, is not going to be uh, what it was over the previous 20 years. Uh, I think that's an obvious statement, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, a lot of it is just the maturation process, right? Whether it's an economy or a corporation uh, is just uh, really difficult, if not impossible, to continue to grow um, at that rate. But the issue with China uh, is that uh, it's getting old before it became rich. Um, And so there's lots of comparisons to Japan and for good reason. But the key difference uh, between Japan and China is that uh, per capita GDP in Japan, three times what China is. So it still hasn't created the wealth, right? And, uh, and I think that's an important distinction. Uh, and then that gets you to the three major headwinds, right? You mentioned Allen demographics. Uh, you're seeing an outright decline in working age population. Uh, that will continue. So uh, they also don't have a social security net underneath, right? So it's, uh, that is a real tax um, on the economy for sure. Uh, the second is deleveraging. So the property sector, uh, uh, you know, is front and center, of course. Uh, but their property sector is three times larger than the U.S. Uh, uh, before the GFC. So it's it's a big a big, uh, big source of deleveraging um, and just general de-risking, right? Um, and so it's kind of reinforced by, um, you know, the current You know, government and Xi really crushing animal spirits in the private sector. I don't think uh, they will have the ability to track uh, foreign flows, which is, you know, critical to, uh, um, you know, help support that economy. So um, I see China um, in a really difficult spot here uh, over the next uh, 10 years. And I think that matters in how we think about uh, emerging markets, how we think about global growth. Um, and uh, it's just a big change
2: from what we've experienced over the past uh, 20 years. And from a, I mean, obviously, there's, there's going to be multiple channels by which that may impact the economy and, and global asset markets. You know, it, will it, it still have the same kind of level of um, current account surplus that it needs to recycle? And will it be more, Will it, do you think it'd be more a disinflationary force or, or more of an inflationary force? Or, or sorry, maybe less of a disinflationary force, I guess, uh, for, for, for the for the global, global economy? Or, or I guess what would you say is the most obvious implication of all of that in terms of is it weaker economic growth and then for, for, for global asset prices?
0: I think the um, the most obvious one in my mind, at least, is uh, uh, around commodity prices. But I think uh, China propping up uh, commodity prices through their uh, uh, growth um, uh, will be quite different going forward. Uh, so I see that as a source of uh, disinflation in terms of the commodity side. But I also see uh, uh, an inward focus, and you're seeing it today, even the contours of GDP uh, uh, is shifting or you know, attempting to shift. Uh, and it's less focused on uh, a global trade, right? Uh, uh, it's more inward looking around consumption. Uh, and so that all else equal doesn't drive global growth in the same way um, and has less of an influence on, um, on inflation. So as I kind of put the China story together with the onshoring, friendshoring. Uh, I see that as uh, an inflationary force, not a disinflationary force. Um, and so that's that's kind of my view of it.
2: Yeah. And from a global fixed income perspective, obviously, I guess a weak China growth trajectory. Uh, and, and, you know, as people draw parallels with Japan, you might expect, you know, we might see rates uh, trending down and, and possibly the need for more unconventional policies there. Is that a bullish scenario to invest in Chinese fixed income or do kind of geopolitical concerns outweigh that and concerns around the currency? Or how do you think about China as a potential component in in, in a global fixed income portfolio? Yeah, so to me,
0: the geopolitical concerns are uh, front and center. You know, I mentioned uh, about our bullishness uh, of the U.S. and the rule of law matters to investors. Um, And I don't think you can say it the same when you talk about China. Uh, So the fragility of of those rules uh, um, are important. If you look at the opportunity set, it's mostly in the property sector, uh, which clearly is uh, under pressure for uh, quite some time to come. So no, I I don't really personally see it as a uh, opportunity. Uh, I also see uh, lots of constraints given uh, the amount of leverage that they have in the system of what they can and can't do, from not only a, a policy standpoint but from a, a, a monetary policy standpoint. So now I don't see China from a fixed income standpoint as a real kind of destination at this point in time.
2: Okay, and I mean more broadly, you know, you know, I, I suppose one of the interesting themes over the last of, oh, number of years has been. If you within the emerging market side, uh, a bit of a emerging market central banks pursuing um, uh, policies that were, you know, uh, I suppose a little bit more independent to from the, the developed markets, and, and now being maybe at the forefront in terms of the easing cycle, is that an area of opportunity, or or how do you see uh, EM debt from a sovereign and, and a local markets perspective?
0: I think so. I, what's notable about this cycle has been led by emerging markets as far as uh, central bank policy is concerned. They were the first to raise rates, first to cut rates, um, so definitely have uh, led the charge here. I do think there's an opportunity in emerging markets, particularly as you know China becomes less influential, right? Those other emerging market markets, um, Countries uh, will uh, will step in and fill the gap in my mind. Um, so uh, I do think there's a real positive outlook for EM. The tricky aspect of EM is that it's uh, very bifurcated, tricky and opportunity at the same time. But it's very bifurcated. If you look at emerging markets, you have uh, you know the higher quality uh, EM countries. Let's define it as investment grade. You know they're doing really quite well, but. There's not a lot of value from a fixed income perspective necessarily, and and then you know some of the lower quality, problematic countries come with a lot of risk. So um, it is uh, very much of a security selection type of marketplace in EM. And I guess the difference, which I view is a, a positive, honestly, uh, the difference uh, of EM markets today versus historically is that it's less of a, a singular trade and more of a, a, a idiosyncratic trade, which I think shows to the maturity of that market over the past you know 20 years. so broadly EM yeah, I'm not like excited about per se, but there's lots of opportunities within and I do see uh, emerging markets benefiting here um, over the next uh, a few years for sure and longer than that.
2: Just come back to, um, you know, what you said at the, at the very beginning around the uh, secular shifts that we're seeing, and we've we've talked through most of them at this stage. Um, but one of the things uh, I've noticed was that you touched on it was a, a difference or a change central bank response function um, maybe going forward versus the past. Curious to get your thoughts on that. Obviously, there's a general, possibly a, there was a sense in markets last year of, of an end to, to the Fed putt. Um, Is that part of your thinking or or what are you thinking in terms of the the, the central bank response function?
0: So I think the put has changed and I think the central bank reaction function has changed in my mind simply due to inflation, right? You go back to what I was saying before around the persistence uh, above versus below uh, the 2% target. Um, And I just believe if you're above that 2%, uh, the degrees of freedom that you have to cut interest rates is uh, much more constraint than if you're below and and uh, and I think that's more than a subtle shift, right I just think you know if you're a central banker and you don't have to worry about inflation, which by the way is the mandate, right and in most cases the sole mandate, you know, I just don't think it's so easily dismissed, and I, and um, and and so that's really driving my thinking more than anything else. It's just that a uh, simple but uh, important uh, uh, input. But as far as the put is concerned, well, I guess uh, uh, there's other ways to you know have puts into the marketplace, and you did see that in uh, March of this year uh, in the U.S. around the regional banking crisis, right? So that. The uh, the continuation of these new programs, lending programs, um, will continue uh, uh, and they'll provide liquidity into the system uh, just in different ways. So, um, I don't see the Fed put as an example, as an interest rate put. I see it as a, uh, a program put. And so, they will continue to liquefy and make sure the market functions um, and it's less uh, uh, less obvious, but still quite apparent
2: uh, as an investor. Okay. And I, I mean, in terms of, um, you, you know, you, you have, as you mentioned, like 25% chance of recession. If we started to see more serious signs of economic slowdown as we go into next year, but inflation is still, you know, running at maybe core levels of around 3% or so, you know, that would create the, the I guess, the dilemma for central banks, which they haven't been presented with to date. How do you see that scenario playing out? Do you think they're more likely to be hawkish and point to the 3% is still too high? Or will they say, well, taking a forward-looking view, given the weakening of the economy, we, we can still cut rates? What's your sense on that?
0: Yeah. So what you described is the worst possible scenario for a central bank era, Exactly. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 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 it's somewhat of an intractable uh, problem to solve. Uh, but I think it goes back to the labor market. I think labor is key not only from an inflation standpoint, but from a growth standpoint. And the tricky part of, around the labor piece is that um, it's quite volatile uh, and it's late cycle. Um, and so, oftentimes what you see is a real strong labor market right up until the end, right? And it just goes, uh, you know, I think central banks know that. So um, I think there's more room to be less hawkish now with inflation closer to their target uh, uh, than where they were a year ago. So I do believe that uh, they're willing to have a little more inflation in the system to uh, help help uh, uh, the labor market from cratering. Uh, but that's a real test. Uh, the question that we often get is, you know, will central banks explicitly change their target? And we don't think so. We think that would be a really bad idea. Uh, you know, you can't like change the rules of the game uh, midway through, right? It doesn't invoke confidence into the institution. But I think it's one of those things where they'll allow, Uh, a little more tolerance than they have historically uh, for uh, protection of the labor market.
2: Okay, Um, and I mean, in terms of, as you say, uh, you you kind of mapped out a a kind of a distribution of possibilities in terms of distribution, soft landing, weak inflation, and and a more upbeat scenario, you know, within the recession or even, you know, the, the hard landing possibility, what are the areas that you're focused as, as the potential weak spots there? And, and what are the kind of signposts that you're watching in terms of the high-frequency data that would, that, that would tip you off that maybe we're heading in that direction more than one of the other scenarios?
0: Yeah, so what's unique about this cycle, I would say, in some respects, is that um, there's not a lot of uh, excess built into the system. Some view that as a reason for a, a shallow recession if we do have one, right? Um, I see it a little different in a way. So the excesses that uh, I see uh, are in the credit markets uh, and outside the traditional credit markets. Um, and so if you go back to the GFC, there was a clear desire by by regulators uh, to diffuse the risk across the banking system system which is to push it outside the banking system right and so as a consequence of that you've seen an explosion in private credit uh you know, even levered loans um and so uh, what i worry about that is um one it's opaque so it's really hard to uh, have a true understanding but um you know i think about you know higher for longer rate impact on these capital structures. There's been so many capital structures, whether it's real estate or corporations built on the back of zero or low interest rates, you know, with rates higher and uh, cash flows lower, uh, that puts a lot of pressure on these capital stacks. And so I see a higher than uh, normal default rate environment, distress environment, regardless of a recession or not. But if a recession does hit, then I think that's where the stress and strain is going to be in the system. Um, And what I worry about is that uh, the central bank slash fiscal ability to fix that uh, is uh, really quite challenged. Um, So they lost control. Effectively, regulators and central bankers lost control by diffusing the risk outside their sphere. And the fiscal thing is important, too, as we started this conversation around the deficit. You know, if, in fact, we do um, hit a recession, the fiscal impulse that you typically receive in that uh, environment, I think, is severely uh, constrained, just given where we are today. Now, never underestimate a politician's ability to change, uh, 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 you know, their, their uh, commentary but it is a constraint that uh, uh, is something to factor in. So you put it together, less fiscal impulse. Central banks are constrained by, by inflation. You know That suggests to me, uh, if we do have a recession, it's not simply going to be a shallow one because those tools that typically are available uh, may not be available this time, which means it'll float lower uh, from an
2: economic standpoint. Okay. And so, I mean, in terms of the kind of credit and the default in the private credit sector is the point that, I mean, p- part of the, the, I suppose the the view was that as as lending kind of transitioned into private credit markets, if there was defaults and problems there, it wouldn't be system systemic, uh, you, you know, it, it wouldn't. But, but, obvi- but presumably if private credit lenders are suffering losses on loans, they will equally retrench as much as uh, traditional banks would. So, it uh, uh, presumably, it would amplify a down a downswing in the economy. Or, what, what would you think?
0: No, I think that's quite right, uh, uh, and the opacity of it all uh, makes it more challenging, right? Um, and so, but just in simple terms, it, there's just been an explosion of uh, growth in that area, uh, and uh, history tells you that. Uh, you, know, you look for uh, where growth has really ramped up in a meaningful way uh, where, you know, for a problem, right? And we saw it in housing, of course, back in 2006, uh, uh, and, and today I see it in private credit.
2: Okay, good stuff. Well, I'm conscious that we're coming up, up on time, and we always like to ask our guests uh, before we wrap up in terms of things that have been influential in their careers and pieces of advice they can pass off to people who are maybe, uh, starting off, you know, what would you say to people who want to get better clued into economics, global macro and global macro investing and, and any suggestions on things to read or to do? Yeah, you
0: know, it's funny. I, um, I tend to, uh, to look at readings, books, articles, um, oftentimes outside the financial world, you know, I, I um, personally learn a lot by reading history. For me, for example, when the markets get crazy, which it's been crazy for quite some time, um, you know, I have this belief when things speed up, I want to slow it down. Uh, And then I also want to tune out the white noise. And so, you know, I typically uh, read a lot less of the financial daily news, uh, uh, you know, don't watch financial TV. uh, uh, And I read, uh, uh, history or something that helps ground me as, uh, oftentimes, uh, that historical perspective, uh, is far more, uh, influential in how you invest in your thinking than listening to or reading, uh, a reiteration of the same thing over and over again. So that's, that's, that's one of my, my, uh, 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 uh tools or tricks I'd say. I'll,
2: Okay, well, very good. Uh, Greg, thanks very much for, for for joining us today. It's been a great conversation. I've uh, learned a lot. And uh, so for all of our guests, make sure to follow Greg's work because you can, as you can tell from today's conversation, we're living in a truly global macro-driven world and it's more important than ever to stay informed. So from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back soon with more content.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged.